One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. The other hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. As usual, lots to talk about in the latest edition of The Other Hand. We've had a speech from the Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Powell, uh, that has certainly created a lot of consternation in bond markets. So I think it's worth talking about that. Um, and we've seen some data out of the United States, which is also important to talk about given how data-dependent Powell has set himself up to be at this juncture. We have the data out of the United Kingdom on retail sales. Uh, we had two by-elections in the UK that I think are worth talking about. And, of course, the Israeli situation continues to rumble on. So uh, there's, a, there's an awful lot to talk about in the context of Israel, but that's actually where I'd like to start. It's incredibly difficult to form a view on what's happening there at the moment, largely because, as is always the case, um, in wars, truth becomes an immediate casualty. So it's very difficult to know what to believe coming out of there at the moment. But just as the Ukraine war situation, I think back in February 2022, created massive polarization around the world, and quite simply, you're either pro-Ukraine or anti-Ukraine. That seemed to be the you know, the, the polar situation that was created. Well, the same thing has definitely emerged over the last couple of weeks um, in relation to Palestine versus Israel. What side of that are you actually on? And I know you've had a lot of interaction on social media. Uh, I heard about it. I didn't, I don't spend very much time on social media, but um, talk to us about it, Chris. Well, the first lesson, of course, is that I should spend far less time, precisely zero time on social media. I fall into the trap continuously and I really should stop and it's going to be perhaps my Christmas or indeed New Year resolution when it eventually arrives to stay off it and I'm actually thinking of leaving Twitter altogether it's such a cesspit 
But one of the things that I talked about in my social social media, excuse me, interactions was how anti-Semitism appears to be more prevalent than I certainly thought it was. And I was surprised to see some data, admittedly old data, it's a few years old, of looking at anti-Semitic attitudes in different countries, including Ireland. And I mentioned that in this survey of anti-Semitic attitudes, there were quite a few Irish people responded to survey questions with, certainly on the face of it, with anti-Semitic answers. Now, it was it varied depending on the question and ranged from 20-something percent to 30-something percent of respondents in Ireland. Uh, their answers revealed, according to the surveyors, a, a certain level of anti-Semitism. And when I suggested that there were some or, or plenty of anti-Semites, I think a third of people answering in that way, justifies that description. Uh, I got a, a mini pylon, uh, people denying that Ireland was anti-Semitic. And, that, and that's a reasonable point to take. You know, if one third of people display anti-Semitic attitudes, then you can question the survey itself. And you can point to the fact that two thirds of people don't uh, display anti-Semitic attitudes. And there's also the case that, according to the survey, Ireland, uh, although having some anti-Semitic opinions, uh, was less anti-Semitic than the average European country. So that you can have that kind of ridiculous debate about whether whether that makes you an anti-Semitic country or not. But the, the broader point that I was trying to make is not just about Ireland, but more generally about the world, that there are more anti-Semitic attitudes than there should be, and certainly more anti-Semitic attitudes than I thought. I have a particular view of this, born inevitably of my own personal experiences, as a young man, I lived in Golders Green in North London, which is a very Jewish area of North London. I lived in a house that was occupied um, variously by at least 15 people, sometimes 25, 30 people. It was a one-word description that doesn't really capture it. It was a commune and full of Jewish people, and I was one of the very few Gentiles in the house. So I, I have, to this day, a lot of Jewish friends as a result of those experiences of living in a very Jewish part of North London. One of the people that I got to know living in that house was the uh, a chap who was actually imprisoned with Nelson Mandela at the original trial in the early 1960s. It was called the Ravonia trial. It's where Nelson, where Nelson Mandela's comrades, he was already in jail at the time, were all captured. And it was a farmhouse in a place called Ravonia. So it became known as the Ravonia trial. And there's only one white man. Uh, in the dock with Mandela and Walter Sisulu and Governor Mbiki and various other ANC characters that all went to Robin Island for life. My friend, I call him my friend, it probably is, is, is not an appropriate description. It was a chap I got to know very well when he eventually came out of prison 20 odd years later after that trial and came to London. And he stayed in that house, actually, that I'm referring to. And he was the only white man on trial with uh, Nelson Mandela and he was Jewish. And the Jewish connection was part of his release from jail after being inside for nearly 20 years. And I got to know him quite well. That Jewish connection meant that he flew straight from South Africa's uh, his jail in South Africa to Israel and uh, caused an awful lot of trouble as a result of uh, some Jewish connections helping to get him out of prison. He immediately started criticizing Israel's policies towards the Palestinians. This was way back in the day before I think it was trendy to be pro Palestinian amongst many liberals. So this guy was that I got to know very well, became very, very fond of. Um, he died a year or two ago now, um, well into his 80s, became a, an elder statesman of the ANC movement. 
um, and was always very, very critical of Israeli policies. Um, as I say, he, he was Jewish. And so I got to know a lot about the nuances, the history, and what it was like to be a part of the Jewish diaspora in South Africa, in London, and indeed elsewhere. And so I, I have a particular perspective that I understood how a Jewish person could be um, very loyally Jewish to to their religion. A lot of the people I knew were secular Jews. Some of them were religious, uh, the usual mixture. And I got to understand how difficult this subject is and how taking sides is actually ridiculous. Because even back then, I knew that great wrongs had been done to both sides and both sides had done great wrong. And how do you sort out an opinion that goes back to the times before Christ. I had a debate with a young Irishman in Dublin the other day, actually, in which he started talking about how all this started in the 1940s. And I had to explain to him, being the old pompous man that I am, that this all started well before Christ was born. The reason why a Jewish diaspora exists was that they were all kicked out of Palestine, uh, or whatever it was called back then, uh, by the Romans. And the reason why uh, there were big Jewish communities all over the world, but particularly in Eastern Europe and Russia, where the pogroms of the 19th and other centuries took place, is that uh, the Jews were there because they'd lost their homeland and that they had been persecuted on and off, mostly on rather than off, ever since. And, of course, the British messing up Palestine with something called the Balfour Declaration, two civil servants called Sykes and Pico drawing lines on maps during the First World War. It's an incredible mess. And the best way I can describe this incredible mess is via other people's descriptions who are far more articulate than I. One such being a, an absolutely fantastic article in the London Times this week by a Jewish journalist, a woman called Juliette Samuel, in which she describes how she was eating her breakfast the day after the Hamas attacks hit the news. And she says, I breakfasted in a rage. It was a silent rage. My children are far too young for this stuff and an unwelcome no, an unwelcome one. God knows I've spent most of my adult life deliberately trying to stay out of this particular fight. Who could ever compete with the self-appointed self-appointed forensic historians of the Israel-Palestine conflict? Who could ever calmly go up against, authoritatively go up against the champions of one side or the other without digesting 10 Bibles worth of information? For a diaspora Jew, what was to be gained other than the uneasy feeling either that one would never get a fair hearing or that you might later find you had defended the indefensible. But this detachment is now impossible. And I've, I've read lots of articles like this. There was another one by a, a, another journalist, another woman, Jewish journalist called Hadley Freeman in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago in which she was revising her attitudes towards her fellow Brits. She essentially argued that um, she now really doesn't fully trust them in the way that she does in the past and was quite, dare I say, extreme or maybe even inflammatory, saying that she now doubts whether or not if there were trains in which she was being put on to go to the camps in the Second World, would these people that she now knows in Britain be the ones to give her a shove onto the train carriages? Quite strong stuff. And this is how these people certainly feel at the moment. And another Jewish journalist, a guy called David Aronovich, uh, took issue with Hadley Freeman and said that he doesn't feel that way about his friends. So listening to all this stuff leads me to think that this is, you know, goes far deeper 
and is far more complicated than answering the simple question, which side are you on? You can't possibly, I think if you are an intelligent, sentient human being with some awareness of all of this stuff, even if you only know some of it, to be able to say that you take one side or the other is intellectually lazy and frankly ridiculous. Uh, I don't know where that leaves me, but it certainly leaves me very suspicious of all of the strong views that are being expressed out there and certainly very suspicious of the people who take one side or the other. And it leaves me with all sorts of, with more questions than answers. Um, but one question that I have for you, Jim, which is an honest question, is that I heard, you know, there was a, there was a question time on BBC. It's their equivalent of, I think you either do or used to have a program called Question and Answers, similar kind of format with a panel and a chair. And it was from Northern Ireland. And of course, they were relating the Irish peace process to what might or might not have happened in Israel in recent decades and what might happen next. And is there, just as there was no chance of ever, the, we used to think there was no chance of the conflict in Northern Ireland ever being resolved. Is there any chance of the conflict in Israel being resolved? Are there any lessons? And I heard all sorts of intellectually lazy stuff, people taking sides. That certainly was true. And I think that is frankly ridiculous. It's shallow. It, it stems from flabby liberal thinking. It stems from superficial thinking. And you, it leads people to sit, say, saying things like, I think there should be a ceasefire. And the obvious question, which was asked on question time, a ceasefire between whom? You've got one side Israel and you've got the other side Hamas. Hamas is dedicated not just to achieving certain objectives with respect to land, territory or anything like that. They're determined to exterminate Israel. That's in their founding charter. They want this, all of these people dead. They want Israel raised off the map. And so how do you have a ceasefire with somebody that is de determined via their founding charter to kill you? It's, it's a tricky question. Another piece of flabby thinking was that uh, it was repeated by many panelists that the international community should step in. And this is an important aspect of this war, which is that um, one of the reasons why it's taking place, one of the many reasons why it's taking place, is that there is no international community anymore. And that the reason why there is conflict in a lot of places in the world at the moment is that the international community, such as it was, has disappeared. There is no global policeman. Pax Americana, the, the, the Americans acting as the global policeman, have gone missing in action. And despite Joe Biden's strenuous efforts to the contrary, America's isolationism and withdrawal from that role as the world's policeman, I think is a contributory factor, just one, to what's going on at the moment. So I, I, think, it, I think it's a complete mess. And I think something has shifted quite fundamentally in the world this week. I think we've realized that without a global policeman, these conflicts are going to break out repeatedly. We could talk about Azerbaijan and Armenia. We could talk about what's happening in the Balkans. That's kicking off, or at least it's threatening to kick off again. Obviously, there's Ukraine, there's China and Taiwan. All of these things have multiple causes, but one is the absence of a global community willing to stand up and say, no, you shouldn't be doing this. I think that something has shifted in the media. I think that that anti-Semitism thing that I started this little soliloquy about was revealed very much in Western media this week with the bombing of the hospital in Gaza, which led to hundreds of people dying. It was immediately parroted in the New York Times, the BBC. I think even some media outlets in Ireland were guilty of this. They immediately just published Hamas's claims about that bombing as a fact without doing any fact-checking. 
there are a number of aspects about that to talk about. Um, I won't go into it in any great detail, but first of all, it was very clear from the moment that news broke that it wasn't clear who did it, because one of the things that has been pointed out is that there are plenty of things called open source intelligence pointing to the fact that there were questions about who did it. If you read all that open source intelligence, if you read the very careful forensic inquiries done by organizations such as Bellingcat and other various non-mainstream media outlets, fact checkers, etc., you will know that there is no answer to the question who did it. We do not know. And there are plenty of people out there who purport to know. And so I think my own trust in the BBC and the New York Times has been severely shaken this week. And I think a lot of people's has. I think. Oh, Chris, hold on a second. Mm. How do you fact check it? Okay, that's, sorry, that's, my, that, that's my final point here. My final point is that I sit here as a flabby Western liberal, guilty of much shallow thinking. I put my hands up and I say to myself, they, they, back in the day, and this is the sense in which something, one of the many things that has shifted for me this week, is that I used to have trusted sources. I used to be able to say, I can form my own opinions, I can do my own research, and I can find things out, and I can get a well-informed view about things all sorts of things, economics, finance, politics, you name it. I know how to do it. I'm not sure I can anymore, Jim. Yeah, I'm not sure that we have when, these good when, sources. When that story broke the other night, I mean, my interpretation of what I read in media like BBC, Sky, etc., was that Hamas claimed it was Israel did it. No, Well, the BBC reported... That's how I interpret it. The BBC's report was that... And I haven't got the quote in front of me, but I do remember it. Um, so I'm paraphrasing slightly. Was that Israel bombed the hospital? Over 500 people are dead, according to Palestinian sources. They didn't say Hamas; they said Palestinian sources. And of course, the only source was Hamas. Okay. Well, yeah, that that's not then stating it as a fact. It's according to Palestinian sources. That's how I interpret it. Jim, and um, the world media reported that as an Israeli attack on the hospital without checking the fact. But sorry, it reported it according to Palestinian sources. I mean, how, how do you determine who actually did it? Um, well, they should, they should have asked I mean, the question. I wouldn't be that critical with media, I have to say, because they were quoting Palestinian sources. And then a day or so later, they were quoting Israeli sources and other they, sources. The, the story could have been presented completely differently. There was a, an explosion at a hospital in which hundreds of people were di died and hundreds of people were injured. They could have then said, who did it is an open question. They chose to report one side of it. Because they'd only got a story from one no, side it was a, you, it was a, it was instantly available you could have gone to all these other open sources that were immediately saying hang on a minute the evidence is not consistent with those palestinian claims okay i will we'll disagree on this chris because when i heard it the other night this is how i interpreted it. they were citing palestinian sources it does take a few days i guess for the part of the full story to get out even though we probably will never know the truth of who actually did it but whatever way you look at it, um, a horrendous event. What do you think now? Who do you think did it now? I have no idea. I think that's I the only know. honest answer you can give. Yeah, because I don't believe any sources mm. at the But don't, don't you see my point about something shifting is that we can no longer rely on the original sources that we used to rely on. Yeah, well, absolutely, Chris. And I, and I guess a more fundamental point here that really is an existential threat to everything going into the future is the role of AI in, in this whole process, um, you know, the 
you, you were talking about there is no global policeman, but one of the things that AI is certainly succeeding in doing is breaking down the notion of the nation state. And I, and I, I, I guess what's your definition of AI, but it's just the whole broad use of technology, social media, etc., um, to drive an agenda. The world is just being ripped apart by the evolution of AI. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we've had um, Noah Smith on this podcast talking about AI, um, and we've had many discussions about it. And you can see all the positives that it is bringing. Uh, but there are also massive downsides. Um, and containment of AI is proving impossible and will prove impossible. So as a consequence of that, you know, there is no possibility of getting a united approach to anything, particularly the Israel-Palestinian situation at the moment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Can I read you Juliet Samuel's response to our debate about, yes. about the hospital bombing? When the truth emerged, most of the media outlets did not issue corrections, admit they had relied on Hamas sources for a major news story. They did not send out fresh notifications. They did not review their editorial policies or reverse their emotive headlines to blame the terrorist group for the latest senseless massacre. They prevaricated added weasel-worded caveats and quietly tweaked phrases to maintain the initial impression so that, for example, a BBC subheading stating hundreds killed became hundreds were taking shelter, and almost a whole day later, demonstrably false social media posts parroting Hamas's original lines were still live online. The very worst offenders were those most likely to lament the spread of fake news, to see themselves as guardians of moderation and truth. The same outlets that had taken days of careful passing to verify and report claims that dozens of Jewish babies were murdered by terrorists last week. So it's the asymmetry in reporting, Jim, that people are taking issue with, that they were very careful with, to try and verify and fact check all of the claims about the original Hamas attacks on Israel, but were not careful to verify and fact check the claims of the Israeli attacks on a hospital. It's well, the asymmetry. Yeah, I, I, I don't see it, Chris, to be honest. I mean, as I say, um, when I read the story in media outlets, it was according to Palestinian sources. That's what I read. And that's obviously Hamas. But then where did I read a day later uh, the fact that actually maybe not that it, 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 it could have been a Hamas missile that actually hit the hospital? Islamic like that, Jihad. That was, that was reported. That was reported as well, Chris. Not for a while. And it could have but, been reported when, instantly. It could okay. have been reported instantly because... The, the, so are you the, saying the media is anti-Semitic as well, yeah? I'm saying 
that the this interpretation that Juliet Samuel and I, I'll put my hands up, are putting on this, is that the asymmetry in reporting is consistent with some kind of latent anti-Semitism. Yes. Okay, interesting. Um, it's funny, going back to the, the, the beginning of this discussion about anti-Semitism in Ireland, to be 100% honest, I have never experienced any level of anti-Semitism in this country more than any any I mean I see a lot more anti-Britishness in this country than actually anti-Semitism for example. I think that both things can be true Jim I think that um, uh, as a Brit who lived in Ireland for for many uh, for many years and forgive me I'm uh, I'm now going to swear so anybody of a sensitive disposition or children listening please tune out now but you know I have in Ireland been told to fuck off back to where I come from it didn't happen very often but it did happen so I have experienced anti-British. I've been told that in Dublin, Chris. Well, probably by me. No. 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 Oh, no. Right. No. Okay. okay. Um, the 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 thing is, of course, there are, there are anti-British attitudes in Ireland. I think one of the the dirty secrets of Ireland is just how much anti-Britishness there there, there still is, and, not, and that's only amongst some Irish people. That's not the country. It's not everyone. There are a lot of people who were, frankly, probably until I opened my mouth, were unaware that I was British. And when I did open my mouth, they couldn't care less that I have a British accent. But I, Chris, why did you want Fiji to beat England last weekend? Oh, I, I think the English rugby team deserve to be beaten by anybody that plays them. I think that's tribalism rather than racism. Both are nasty. And I agree, my tribal instincts to always want England to lose at rugby are nasty, horrible instincts. And I should get over them, admit them and um, do penance. But uh, I do think tribalism is a, is a sin, but it's a lesser sin perhaps a venial sin, to use a Catholic term, rather than a mortal sin. Oh, oh, I don't know. I mean, personally, I would always find myself shouting for England or an English team in, in most circumstances. I support, I support England at cricket, but not at rugby. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> in, in, interesting. I think we, we'll obviously never get to the bottom of this, but, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is I see... I. I I mentioned this in the previous podcast that when I did politics in UCD back in the 80s, one of the courses I did was the politics of divided societies. And one of the areas that we focused in on was the Palestinian situation. But it, it was interesting that uh, it, it dated back to the 1940s. It dated from the 1940s, really. Um, it did not go back into 2000 years of history. And it was only years later um, I discovered the real story that it did actually go back to before Christ when the uh, Jews were thrown out of that part of the world. Uh, Chris, can I ask you a question? So I, I so I, I always had a very, very sympathetic attitude towards the Palestinian situation and the way the Palestinians have been treated in the Gaza and the West Bank. It, it does not take a rocket scientist to figure out that when you get that sort of treatment of a race of people, that it, it is going to eventually end very, very badly. And um, I, I, cannot, I cannot see a ceasefire here. I cannot see a resolution to this crisis. I think in another thousand years, we'd still be talking about it, to be honest. Let me respond to that point, of course, that uh, to be sympathetic to the Palestinian cause is right. It's natural and it, uh, it accords with international law. It accords with natural justice that, that most decent people would feel they have had great wrongs done to them and a lot of us 
um, have used words like, uh, I'm not anti-Semitic, but I am anti a lot of the things that Israel does. And uh, I think that it, it's entirely logical, consistent and right to, to be able to say something like that and for it to be true. One of the things that shifted for me, that the two things that have shifted for me this week have been uh, my now growing distrust in mainstream media. And it's related to the second thing, which is that there is, I think, far more anti-Semitism, perhaps latent, perhaps it does, it, it needs something to bring it out. But I, it kind of explains to me, frankly, how the Holocaust actually happened. I've always understood that the Holocaust was a great evil and that you could explain it in terms of the evil that was present in Germany at the time. But it's part of thousands of years of history. And one of the peculiarities, one of the strange, awful things about humanity, there are many of these things. There are many great things about humanity. But what, what has become evident to me uh, as a result of all of this is that anti-Semitism, for one reason or another, uh, for many reasons, has been present in the world not just in Ireland, but amongst many people, perhaps many of us. If you scratch us hard enough, you'll find some anti-Semitic views of in far too many people. Perhaps it's a mystery as to why it is, exists. We can describe it, though, as going back thousands of years. And as a race, as a human race, there is far more anti-Semitism around than we are comfortable with admitting. And Chris, why is there anti-Semitism? Going back thousands of years. You know, that, that's another podcast and, and, and a book and a thesis and, and a library yeah. of, of books. You, you can describe it much more easily than you can explain it. Mm. And it, it goes back to the, the original libels that um, have been attached to the Jewish people. A lot of Christian anti-Semitism stems from the crucifixion of Christ um, and then the, the original blood libel about the way in which Jews... Uh, treated non-Jewish children. There are so many lies, myths, and uh, stories associated with anti-Semitism. It just seems to have been something that has grown. It has metastasized like a, a cancer. And uh, trying to identify just why it happened is much harder than simply describing it as a reality. And for me, the reality is that there's far more of it around than I previously realised. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess from my own personal perspective, um, any Jews I've ever come across, um, I liked them. Uh, and even anecdotal experiences, I did the New York Marathon many years ago. And I remember going through a J Jewish neighbourhood in Brooklyn and they were all out on the street. Um, the Hasidic Jews, absolutely charming people, cheering us on, giving us drink, giving us food, you know. Now, so, and um, I know I just, that you're not that you don't have any latent or none, actual anti-Semitic views whatsoever, but, Jim. But, I, I just, yeah, uh, yeah. but what I would say is, Jim, you came very close there to describing what I'm talking about: the attitudes of other people, which is that they say things like, "I am not anti-Semitic, but I'm anti-Israel," and I said that that's a legitimate point of view, and if it's honestly held, it's absolutely uh, coherent, and moral, and ethical, and reasonable. But too many people say that to conceal their anti-Semitism. Uh, a lot of people in the Labour Party here in the UK, for example, did precisely that. And the old cliche that Jewish people themselves will, will tell you um, is that a lot of people say some of my best friends are Jewish. And they say that to conceal their anti-Semitism. A lot of people in Ireland, Jim, the famous cliche back in the day was, I don't support the IRA, but we say a lot of things. But I think that what, I, what I'm arguing is watch what people do, not what they say.
Yeah, well, I guess I'll just wrap it here, Chris. But I, my, my whole attitude really changed uh, last Saturday week with the Hamas attack on Israel. A- any sympathies I had um, changed dramatically, and all of my sympathies at this juncture are with uh, the people of Israel. I have to say, following that attack, it was absolutely horrendous. And I remember my initial reaction was probably the wrong one, but um, you know, the Israelis should go in and do whatever it takes at this juncture. Uh, to get the Hamas out of there, it'll it, Hamas out of there. It'll never work, obviously. But uh, it, it, it's it's been a mad couple of weeks, and um, obviously, it now poses an existential risk to the whole region and indeed to the stability of the world. So, it's something you could get incredibly depressed about. Moving on to lighter matters, Chris, you must have been delighted um, in the UK in the last twenty four hours. The Labour Party has won back two seats from the Tories, where in one seat, there was a, and that's Nadine Doris, this is old seat in mid-Bedfordshire. The Tories had a 24,000 plus majority. In Tamsworth, they had a 19,000 plus majority. The Labour Party has taken both seats. Um, is this the beginning of the end of the Tory party? If it, the general election were to take place today and the swing across the country was the same as in those two seats, the Tory party would be eviscerated. They would be heading for the graveyard. It, they were by-elections. All of the caveats associated with by-elections apply. You don't necessarily think that they would be repeated countrywide. By-elections, the old cliche goes, are as much protest votes as actual votes. So we, we shall see. But it was certainly a political earthquake in Britain. And I think that there is a reason why that is the reason why the Labour Party is cock a hoop today. And it, it, it really speaks to the view that people have of this current Tory party, their, their 13 years, their multiple prime ministers, uh, the, the, the complete pantomime that British politics and therefore its economy has become. I think people feel it. One of the interesting other polls that were published today, it wasn't just by-election polls that we got the results of today. You and I, you have taken me to task for being pessimistic about the British economy and the fact that it hasn't gone into recession in the way that perhaps I thought it was going to. My get-out has always been it's just bouncing along the bottom and it feels like a recession. That was confirmed. With an, a, a, people were asked, do you think the British economy is in recession? Do you know how many people said yes, it is? Contrary to the evidence, we know it's not. But how many people think it is? 80%. 64%. Two-thirds, of, nearly two-thirds of the British population yeah. say the economy is in recession. That's how it feels Chris, to them. Chris, 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 um, a barber I went to recently tried to convince me that Ireland was in recession. And I said, how's business with you? He said, oh, it's great. Yes. So it just goes to show that uh, where you get your information from is very important. And I think that we all need to do some fact checking. Okay, Chris, just uh, finally, uh, bond markets continue to be incredibly volatile. Uh, The US 10-year yield is tipping 5% at the moment. And Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, gave a speech at the New York Economics Club um, yesterday. um, And I'll just quote him here. He said that the Federal Reserve is proceeding carefully and will make decisions about the extent of additional tightening and how long policy will remain restrictive based on data, the evolving outlook and the balance of risks. Another rate increase is possible if above trend growth persists or if tightness of the labour market is no longer easing. 
Um, the markets reacted in a pretty ballistic fashion to that. Um, I'm not sure actually how they interpreted it because uh, you could take any interpretation from it. Uh, but basically, Powell is telling us that I'm watching the data. If the data is weak, we won't increase again. If the data is strong, we will increase again. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, actually, that is the situation anyway. It didn't take a fumbled speech from Powell to show the markets that this is the case. Uh, the behavior of markets from day to day uh, just increasingly infuriates me. I well, mean, I would I would get morons running the markets. I, I wouldn't get to to exercise about the markets. The markets have always in the very short term been quite moronic and trying to explain what's going on is a fool's errand. I think Powell's speech was dreadful. I think it was ECB like. The, I, if I was writing a, a, a circular, as I used to do many years ago about central banking, I would say the Fed is turning into the ECB in terms of its ability to say and do stupid things. It was a, it was a moronic speech. Two things about it. First, he has to stop saying he's data dependent. He's got to inject into his speech. Yes, we're looking at the data, but we're also forward looking. Where's the forward looking stuff that they're supposed to do? They're supposed to anticipate what's going to happen as well as react to what is actually happening. They need to do both. And he needed, relatedly, the second point to say that the bond market, financial markets generally, but the bond market in particular, is doing part of the work for the Fed. It's tightening monetary conditions. Yeah, 30-year mortgage rates are now over 8% in the States, or at least they hit that level briefly this week. So this is going to slow things down. So I think that it was uh, badly timed, badly worded, and stupid, quite frankly. And I was very disappointed by it. I do think that markets are in grave trouble, partly because the central banks clearly don't know what they're doing, partly because of what is happening in the Middle East and the existential risks and all sorts of risks that are being posed by what might happen next. So I, I do think that we could do a whole podcast and we probably will quite soon on financial markets and what people should and should not be doing with their savings uh, and their pensions and all the rest of it. But uh, we're running out of time, Jim. So shall we leave that one to next time? Yeah, all I can say, Chris, in conclusion, is that um, I think any central banker that would contemplate tightening interest rates, given the uncertainty that persists at the moment, and given the cumulative rate increases we've seen over the last 18 months, um, would be mad. Rates should be left on hold now for the foreseeable future. I would suspect at this stage, and I grow stronger in this view and probably proved wrong, that by the middle of next year, um, if not perhaps a little bit later, we will be discussing here how far interest rates are going to fall because I just don't think um, interest rates can be sustained at these levels given the uncertainty out there. And I guess how the Middle East situation evolves will be a key determinant of that. But uncertainty rules the day at the moment and increasing rates in that sort of environment is mad. I couldn't have put it better myself, Jim. One of the things that's often said to armchair critics such as myself uh, is, okay, you're having a go at the central banks. Or you're having a go at all sorts of different people with respect to economic policies. What would you do? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do, Jim. I would say, look, we've got a real problem in the Middle East. It's already put up energy prices. All prices are up. Natural gas prices in Europe are up 30% since the start of the conflict, this most recent episode of conflict in the Middle East, this is going to complicate the inflation outlook enormously. Those rises in energy prices might be sustained. They could get an awful lot worse. 
And one of the things I am worried about is if Qatar either decides to cut off Western gas supplies as a result of a protest over American involvement in the Middle East, or Iran shuts the state Straits of Hormuz, all of these things could cause either gas and or oil prices to shoot up again. More generally, we simply do not know what is going to happen next. We're going to take whatever the inflation consequences in the short term are on the chin. It's too much uncertainty to do very much. We're certainly not going to raise interest rates in this environment and add to global instability via the financial markets. There's enough of that around at the moment. If that means the fight against inflation has to wait for these things to settle down, and that, that might take some time, so be it. That means that we accept whatever the inflation consequences of this are and that the fight against inflation has to take second place to the efforts that we make to maintain global financial stability in the wake of this geopolitical uncertainty. And it would be irresponsible, not just mad, but irresponsible to do anything else. Instead, what they've said is we're going to be both mad and irresponsible. Super. Listen, Chris, have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Jim. Cheers. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.